Israel is so much more than Krav Maga or falafel, and Jewish continuity has far greater meaning than watching Fiddler on the Roof with your kids. Welcome to the Thrive Study Abroadcast, the show where we will talk about modern Israel, Jewish values, and everything in between. I'm your host, Adi Isaacs, director of Thrive Study Abroad. For the last 15 years, I've seen how a semester or more in Israel will change a student forever. In this podcast, incredible students and people just like them share how Israel and Jewish values not only inspire them, but empower them to make an impact. Yala, Achi, and welcome to the show. Jeremy, thank you so much uh, for joining. It really, it really has been way, way too long, unfortunately, to say that it's been a couple of years since we sat down, and this is the first time we're doing it. But it is a pleasure to sit down with you, Jeremy. Thanks, Adia. You as well. Um, I wish instead of sitting down here, we were back in our, in our day at YU, just reminiscing of the fact that we were never on the same team, which is usually a good sign. If you could say that you were never on the same team as somebody else. But uh, th- those were the good times when we were actually playing against each other. Oh, those were the best of days. I still wish I had your lefty jump shot. <laughs> I still wish I could get halfway up to the rim the way that you used to dunk. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. So tell me a little bit about like, wh- where, where are you from? Where do you go to college? So born and raised outside of Philadelphia, a small town called Yardley, Pennsylvania. Weren't uh, too many Jews there, but um, in about... I think we moved there when I was like nine or 10. My dad's a cardiologist, so we moved across the river. Used to be in Trenton. Really not a lot of, not a lot of from life in that area of the world. Uh, and became religious at a pretty young age. Went to a Jewish day school and then decided to continue um, college in Yeshiva University in New York. But before that, I actually was a basketball junkie. So took my senior year off and decided to go and play uh, at the big public school. So really? I've never, I've never heard of that. I've never heard this part. I knew you played in YU, but I didn't realize what a big basketball junkie you were before then. So yeah. So what was it like in high school? So I'm jealous. It, was my, it must have been my like sophomore year. And I had a coach who was an all American and he said, Jeremy, you can definitely go and play pro or for sure, at least college. So I said, all right, well let's test that theory out. So I went to a couple of the big summer camps at the time called five star. Five star was like, you know, the big converse camp every, every, Big basketball player had gone there, including Michael Jordan went, Steph Curry went, Kevin Durant went. Uh, I was invite only. And Jeremy Pressman. And Jeremy Pressman went. I was not by any means good at that camp. I was, you know, at the bottom of the bottom, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, but I did well enough there. I was on some college recruiting list. We had a good time. And then I started to think, hey, if I wanted to start to play at that level, you know, playing in the small time little private school league in Philly was great. But I wanted to really take it to the next level. So I went to, uh, I transferred out of the Jewish school for my senior year. And I went to a school called Pensbury. Pensbury was a powerhouse, second biggest school in the state of Pennsylvania. Mm. And we had, um, our backup center was six foot 11 to kind of give you a sense of, uh, you know, the basketball program, six days a week practice. Just like all Jewish schools, six eleven. Exactly. Yeah. And I had to make a choice pretty early on there, actually. Uh, so I'm a senior going in, show up. The coach is like, who are you? You're going to start. I said, well, that's great, coach, but I, I don't play on Friday night. He goes, great, you'll be the 13th man on a 12-man team. Do you want to stay on? Wow. Well, first of all, what, what, would, what did your parents think when you wanted to go out of a Jewish school, Jewish high school, to go to, to play basketball? My parents were very, very accepting of it. They said, hey, if that's really what you want to do, that's great. And I said, save your money from the tuition and send me to Israel the next year. So wow. that actually wound up 
being exactly how it worked out. And uh, it was a great experience for me. That team was undefeated, I think, for four years straight in conference, went to the state tournament. Uh, our center wound up going to the NBA. You know, it was a, it was like a really like a different basketball experience and a different level of basketball than I was ever used to. I made some great friendships that I'm still in good contact with today. So what was, what was it like? So you went to the coach. The coach really wanted you to play. You proved yourself. And, uh, and then you broke the Jewish news. Yes. And I played with a yarmulke. Um, wouldn't wow. take it off. So I actually had a pretty big news story that came out about that while I was in high school. So it was weird. I was the guy who wasn't getting any playing time because I wouldn't play on Shabbat. But when we would go to games, like literally some of the fans, I'd have like a whole section like wearing kippahs, not Jewish or anything, just like to be supportive of it. It was a, it was a really cool experience. Uh, I was only kid in a school of 4,000 uh, wearing a yarmulke at the time. And why do you think that the coach didn't want to give you playing time? I mean, obviously there has to be rules and regulations. Yeah, but. what he basically said was that they had half their games were Friday night. And a lot of the practices were Saturday mornings. There was a five-hour practice Saturday morning between weightlifting and, and some of the training. So he said it really didn't make a lot of sense to some of the other guys who were coming to twice as many practices, and I was missing half the games anyways. And it wasn't like a, like a league that you could move much of the games. So was there at some point in time a calculation of like, you know, I wanted to do this, but maybe this isn't for me? Maybe if it was like four years, I might have thought that way. But I thought, hey, this is a great experience, and I loved my teammates. Really, like I said, I made lifelong friendships there, so... It was, uh, it was a good way to meet a bunch of different people. And it wound up being a really net positive experience. Could I have done it for four years? No way. But for one year, did it. Sure, it must have been. You know, How, how old were you? 15, 16 at the time? Uh, yeah, I was a senior in high school. So 16, 17. 16, 17. So to have to make these value-based decisions as going against everybody else, how did that, how did that shape who you are today? I mean, it's powerful. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I guess it's funny. You never really realize that you're somebody who walks against the grain until you tell your story a little bit. For me, it was never a question. You know, for me, not playing on Sabbath was, I don't necessarily think there's something wrong, like from a religious perspective with doing that. It's just not the values I wanted to align with. Like long-term for me, Sabbath came first, family came first, and then basketball was great and enabled me to make uh, meet a lot of people around the world. But at the end of the day, it was not going to be more important to me than that. Even though you transferred specifically for that reason. People didn't think yeah. you were crazy? Everyone thought I was nuts. Yeah. Everyone thought I was nuts. But at the end of the day, that school is um, it's a powerhouse in the state, and you still get on a lot of, you know, recruiting opportunities. You know, the guy I was tasked with guarding was the, the Gatorade player of the year for the state of Pennsylvania. Mm. The guy before him made the NBA. The guy before him made the NBA. He went on to play for West Virginia on their Final Four team. So it was like, you know, you were still getting better just by playing at an awesome level of competition. Was it frustrating seeing guys that you should have started ahead of? Yes. Um, but, you know, you take one for the team. So, And how do you think people's perspective of you was shaped through this whole experience? Meaning, you said you made good friends. What did they, what did they think of you? So for a lot of them, I was the first Orthodox Jew they'd ever met. So it was a big responsibility. Um, I was quite known around the school, which was totally unintentional, especially for the guy that's, you know, riding the bench all but the last 30 seconds. I was the victory cigar that, you know, I can jump a little bit. Anytime I got, you know, even 30 seconds of time, just try to go and dunk on somebody. Um, again, not how I would have envisioned it going into the year, but, you know, I was just kind of goal-oriented and mission-driven, saying, hey, you know, as long as I can be a part of it, this would be a really good thing. And I had this one story where one of the refs actually would not let me into the game. And, you know, we're up by 40 points, and my coach was like, just let him in. Like, we'll take however many texts you need. 
we're standing by the scorer's table and he's going, da, 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 da. he's losing his mind. <laughs> and the ref's just like, I'm sorry, PIAA, whatever it was, the Pennsylvania athletics, whatever, will not let this go. I'm sorry, I can't let you play. And I said, okay, I'm not taking it off. And we're standing there back and forth and back and forth. And then I remember pretty clearly, I walked over, I took my yarmulke and I put it on the scorer's table. And the entire fan base got behind me and they started saying, you know, stuff that I'm not going to repeat here. But uh, after the game, the coach was really well plugged in to the media. He said, do you want a national news story? I said, absolutely not. I don't think that's a good thing at all. He said, what about if it's local and it's positive? I said, that, okay. And um, there was absolutely, I don't know why it happens this way, but there was nothing else that happened that day. And the next day, the paper came out with a picture on the front page of me this big with my yarmulke on. So till today, if I go back to that town, everybody knows, oh, you're the guy that like played basketball with the keep on. It wound up being actually a very positive thing. It was a very positive thing for the Jewish, Jewish people. Yeah. Of that, like, again, the tiny little town, but wow. still, you know, it's a newspaper that goes out to a couple hundred thousand people. So wow. it was kind of cool. So after, after this whole high school, uh, amazing experience, what, yeah. did, what did he do? I decided again, next step for me was always try it out here in Israel. So I went to a school called Gush in, um, in the Gush. That's what it's named after. It's one of the uh, premier schools here, yeshivas, for a specific type of learning that I was very interested in. And it's a program that you do for a year before you go to college. So at that time, I was actually enrolled at University of Maryland. I didn't think I would be going to yeshiva. I didn't really know much about yeshiva. And I was convinced I would go and walk onto the team based on, you know, the level I had played at and some of the relationships that I had because basketball, again, religion was first, but basketball was my life. That was what I spent my hours doing every day and came here, didn't really know anybody, but immediately on the, on the plane realized that, you know, through the basketball world, I had a couple of friends in the school with me and one or two kids from the neighborhood also that uh, I had known from over the years. So spent a year here. It was an amazing formative experience. I actually liked it so much. I wanted to stay, never wanted to leave. Um, my parents said, Hey, you know, you committed to coming back to going to school here and getting an education here being in the U S so you should probably uh, think about that. So that's, that was kind of like the next step decided that, you know, better the, to do it at Yeshiva where I could also, at that point I had kind of built up my love for learning as well. So it was, you know, all of a sudden there was another pillar in the equation that needed to be taken care of. So figured, all right, well, if I can, if I believe that I can play D1, of course I can play D3 at YU. So kind of reached out to the coach. It wasn't all that simple, but uh, that was kind of the next step once I got back to the States to try out for the YU team. Yeah, so you, so you get back to YU. What were, you, what were you studying there, aside for studying basketball? I was going to say my major and my minor were basketball. Let's be honest. I think in between me studying for biochem every once in a while, I used to step onto the court. I used to see you there playing. Yeah, I was say I majored in basketball, minored in weight room. So what were you, what were you studying in YU? I was studying business. Business management, finance. And so how did it work out with the basketball team? So at YU, the way it works is like there's, I guess, three parts to your day. There's the morning where you study Torah, Bible, that kind of stuff. Then you have the afternoon programs where you get your degree. And um, in my case, it was in finance. And then basketball at that point in time was, was nights because the coach we had had a day job. And then I think practice was 745 every night till 1030. And again, in my case, to be totally honest, I spent a lot of time in both of those other periods of working the day. On the, working on the jump shot. Working on the, working on the dunk shot, if we're going to be honest. That's right. And so how was the experience playing ball in YU? 
it was it was an interesting one. Um, I started off actually I didn't make the team, much to my surprise. Uh, the coach had already filled all the roster spots. Uh, you know this story, I think. And um, there were three guys that were said, "Hey, we're all on the team." And then the coach changed his mind, cut all of us in favor of two other guys that were not on the team. I was devastated. I was like, "All right, mom, dad, this was the point at which I said, you know, there's no way I can continue at this tiny D three school if I'm good enough to play D one." And not make the team. This is just this is just too much for me. So I called the coach to say, you know what, I'll I'll be the manager because I had heard stories about the manager like getting on the team right away. And the coach said, no, 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 I made a mistake. You're actually on the team. So see, so just making a call about being the manager you got on the team. Yeah, exactly. it's persistence. Just the persistence. That's that tends to be a story of my life. It's just uh, you know not being afraid to ask, I guess. But. I mean, it was one of those things where it was so last minute that I got onto the team that our first game, we played this tournament called the Ramapo tournament, and they didn't have a jersey for my size. And I guess the person before me was much bigger than me, so they actually had to tape the shorts onto my body to keep them on. So <laughs> Then that's when you realized you were not at a D1 school, you were at a D3 school. That's when I realized I was at a D3 school, exactly. <laughs> I remember I was so jealous. So I, I, I I unfortunately couldn't play basketball and just had too much going on between biochem, but I needed to do something, something. So I played on the tennis team and uh, I remember going to, to Joe Bednarsh and uh, fighting that how could it be that the basketball team, they get all this paraphernalia and we should at least get shoes. And, 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 and I said, you know what, I'll play any one of those basketball players on a one-on-one. And if we win, do we get shoes? And he said, yeah. So I played Mikey and, <laughs> You played Mikey one on one. And we got shoes. You got shoes. Those are, those are the good stories. Yeah, I would not want to match up against you one on one. I'm not sure who would win that game. Um, so, anyhow, yeah, so after after you you uh, you came you came here. What did you what did you do when you came to Israel? So, I guess to finish out the YU story real quick, I went from you know not making the team to making the team, and then I started my second year and was one of a few two year captains in the school history and. As you mentioned, we had a bunch of Israelis on the team. They said, Jeremy, your game is perfect for Israel. You should try. You should come after school and play here. So I was why, getting, did, why did they think that your game was perfect for Israel? At the time, and this is 12 years ago at this point, um, I had a very good mid-range, and I had a lot of athleticism. And Israel is not the most, um, let's call it, athletic basketball environment. So if you can jump a little bit, if you're fast, if you're strong, you have a pretty good chance at a longer career. And the, the types of shots, which, again, I didn't take in the YU system, but I was good at taking were, were shots that you get a lot at a pro level here. So that was kind of what they said, and they were willing to introduce me to their agents. So I figured, you know what, let's let's see how it goes. So that was a whole another story about agents in Israel and that that whole can of worms, which we won't have time yeah, for Yeah, we today. won't go there right now. Yeah, yeah. We we'll have to invite Harel Vadavu with you. we got to invite Harel, yeah, there. exactly. Oh, man. I can tell you. Yeah. Anyways, so... We got here, must have been like Rosh Hashanah time, um, I guess like end of August, beginning of September. And I said, if I could continue, if I could do one year, my wife was like, all right, we'll go for an adventure one year. You'll study in the morning to become a rabbi. And you'll play basketball all the rest of the time. Pro, you'll fulfill your childhood dream and you can continue your studies. I figured do it one year and then go back to New York, work in finance like, uh, you know, like I was classically trained to do. So... <laughs> First year, I played for a, a small team called Pisgat Zev here in Jerusalem. That was interesting. Had lots of ups and downs, um, but got my first kind of pro experience under my belt, and we really liked it. So we said, you know what, let's do another year and see how it goes. And at that point, my wife also said, 
but I also want to start a family. So I started to look and see what else was out there aside from basketball because while, yes, I was playing pro, I was not making tens or hundreds of millions like some of my friends were in the NBA and the NFL, right? That's just not the way Israeli basketball works. So started to see, okay, if basketball and, and smicha, the rabbinical training, like let's say I can get those into a certain period of time every day, it's not like college where you're also studying and you have, you know, family requirements, you know, you're a young guy, newly married, there was still extra time in the day and I was interested in some other things. So I think that was probably a big changing point in my career. If I look back at it was the point at which basketball stopped becoming the number one place I would spend my time and starting to look for, for other opportunities as well. Meaning when you realize it's not you wanted you and your wife wanted to start a family. Yes. 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 That was like, cause basketball is all nights, weekends, travel. You know, you always get this question as a pro, Oh, you live in Israel. So like, where do you go on your off days? And it's like, that it doesn't really work like that. You know, when you're off season, you're training or you go home to wherever you're from, you know, your off days are very unpredictable. They can call you back into practice basically at any time or to weight room. Um, it's not, it's not as scheduled as like a nine to five. So it's, uh, it's a little different than I think people understand it to be. So overall, what was the experience professionally, basketball professionally in Israel? And how would it compare to something equivalent into other European places or the United States? So it's it's pretty, I think it's pretty similar to like any entry-level job. If you're the rookie, if you're the new person, it's a lot of tedious. You got to really prove yourself. Um, I think one way in which it's very, very different is very, very cutthroat, right? Like it is pro. If you have one bad game, you're cut. Two bad games, you're definitely cut, depending on where you sit in the pay stack. If you're getting paid most on the team, maybe one bad quarter, you can get cut. It's really, really very cutthroat in a way that college was not, right? College, you're there. If you're on the team, you're there for four years. It's very hard to lose your spot. Or if you're playing in D1, it's hard to lose your scholarship. Here, if you don't cut it, there's 100, 200, 1,000 people waiting behind you. So that was like a big adjustment for me, first things first, is that not necessarily every practice do you have to go and kill yourself 100%, but you really had to perform. When game time came, you couldn't, like there was no excuse to have a bad game or a bad quarter. Do people have a very tough time with that pressure? Yeah, yeah, they they do. Um, It's weird because you had that dynamic, but then in the States, at least, what I felt growing up was if you lost a game, you knew you were running the next morning, right? So the rides back would be super quiet. Everybody would be upset. Nobody would be talking to each other. In Israel, because it's all guys that grew up playing together, even when you lose, you go to the same restaurant, you like kind of hang with the other team. It's not like life and death the same way it is. And even if you get cut, you might be on that team two days later. It's a very interesting experience where, yes, ball is what you do for your profession, but that it's not life and death the same way it is in the States. That was a very big, like it was a weird dynamic that it's like it's so cutthroat in terms of your job but that you could go and have like, you know, a falafel or a steak or something like that with, with the other guys afterwards. Do you think that's just the difference between, let's say, college and professional, or it's specifically Israel? I don't know. I don't know. Definitely, I don't know, like my friends that play pro in like Europe and like Asia, maybe it's a little bit more like that, especially with the foreigners, right? Because a lot of the times you're the only guy speaking English. Right. My Hebrew is pretty good, so I didn't have that same um, integration challenge, let's say. But in, in the NBA... You know, that's that's a, just a whole different thing because the money is guaranteed and it's such larger sums, you know, even guys that you've never heard of in the NBA are making $10, 12000000 a year. So it's, it's just different. 
So once once now you realize that you know you and your wife want to start want to start a family. So what was uh, what was the next step in terms of professionally? So the next step was reaching out to my network and seeing what I'd actually want to do with my life, right? Because I'm at this point I'm 24, five years old. My wife super old, yeah, super exactly old. right, super old. And uh, for basketball, you're you are getting into that point, like the middle of your career. You better be fully developed at that point. And it, it you had to figure out what what I actually wanted to do. So started asking around. Got connected at the time to a small startup called Our Crowd that was funding other startups. And this is like the end of 2012. So you know, think like an angelist kind of platform where you can say, hey, you want to do this deal, this deal, or this deal and you have the money to do it, you can put it into each of these indiv- deals individually. And what made them a little bit different was that they were coming from the background of like a fund manager, which is like, no, 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 no. don't just pick these and have like nobody do any diligence or make sure that these all check the boxes in a real companies and have real management teams, etc. This was run by a group that like they actually did that professionally beforehand. So I got connected with them. And um, I said, hey, guys, like, I've, I think what you're doing is really cool. I'd like to join. And I remember sitting with John, the founder, he said, um, awesome, can you start right now? And I said, well, I, I'm still playing pro basketball. He goes, oh, that, that's fine. Like, you know, just work <laughs> around it. Doesn't matter. Like, it's startups don't have the same kind of hours that you're used to. And I remember I went to the basketball team and I said, guys, I'm a venture capitalist. Like, I might miss a practice or two. They said, what, what's that? Can you make it to practice? So I somehow became the only person in Israel actively playing professionally and in venture capital at the time. So it was a lot of luck, a lot of um, being the right place, the right time in my mind, you know, that, that came from above, but uh, it was definitely not planned. It's not something that I had like, you know, meticulously focused on trying to meet this person or that person. It just kind of was a good relationship that, that kind of formed from that direction. So when you basically decided that you're starting, starting a family, you went from not having a lot of time at home to having even less time at home. Yeah. That's, what it sounds, that's what it sounds like. You're working full-time, basketball full-time, and, uh, and trying to squeeze in some family time also. Yeah, but as, as my wife will tell you, Alessandra, you, like, <laughs> I, I can't operate any other way. It, I think it was just pretty simple at that point in time was just, hey, just take your approach from basketball because what, what do I know about venture capital at that point in time? I, I didn't even know what those two words together meant, right? All I knew was that if I got on a court, you'd have to drag me off dead. Like if I broke my leg, I'd try to play through it. I was one of those types of players, as you know. So I figured I'll take that mentality to, to business and I'll be the first one to show up. If there's an opportunity to do something that I think I can do, I'll say yes. If there's an opportunity to do something that I don't think I can do, I will ask. And in that case where somebody can't help me, I will say no, but always take those opportunities. And that wound up being actually a pretty good translation from what I learned on the court to being really, really helpful in business. So what were the, so you started off with our crowd and, uh, you know, what, what has been the steps that you've taken to get to where you are now? I know there's a lot of steps along the way. Yeah, but I'll try to keep them, keep them short. So our crowd at the time when I joined was very small, a few people like didn't really have a website, um, and hadn't done any deals that were announced yet. I think our, our initial list of people we were sending emails out to was like 200 people. I mean, today it's 200,000. It's got $2 billion under management. So a lot's changed in 10 years. When you guys moved to the Takanari Shona, when was that? I don't even remember. Maybe five years ago, six years ago at this point. It's a while ago. Um, and it's a couple hundred people at that organization now. So I think the first kind of big step for me was 
the company had invested in a company that was called Replay Technologies. So if you ever watch the Super Bowl and you see like a cool catch and they do the 360 degree replays, that's actually Israeli technology that we had invested in at our crowd. So at that point in time, we said, oh, maybe there is more to the intersection of sports and technology than just one company. Maybe this is something that goes like much larger because Intel bought them for $180 million a couple of months after we invested. And to be honest, a little bit off the record here, but you can keep it in the podcast. That's fine. I, I voted against the deal, <laughs> but I got all the credit for it. So, you know, again, another story of like, this wasn't super calculated from my perspective. So once we got a story of that, how you're having, and especially in Israel, you get extra assistance from, from oh, above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, you get a lot of extra assistance. So once we had done that investment, that put us on the map as like people looking for sports investment. And again, at this point, I'm probably six years, five years into my pro career. Um, I don't remember who I was playing for at the time. Maybe give out Shmuel because I had moved around a bunch uh, on different pro teams in Israel. That's also another really big difference in, in Israel. Your contract is one year, not like in the U.S. where you sign these couple of year contracts or multi years. So it's like Maybe each you season. Have to pitch yourself. Exactly. Each season, like you have to repitch yourself exactly or you can get cut. But getting back to the business side for a second, after that had happened, we started saying, okay, there's probably a lot of sport that needs to change and needs to get up to, to, to the current times. So we started looking around within the R-Crowd context for like, hey, is this just an Israel problem? Can we make three, four investments in Israeli companies that will do things for like smart TVs or smart cameras, et cetera? or data and analytics, all the things that Israel's really, really good at technologically, or is this a global problem, in which case we should find a partner because we're not going to be solving and finding those companies in the U.S. and Asia, et cetera. So started looking around, probably took about a year, and then I got in touch with, uh, through one of the managing partners of our crowd, with the founding family of Adidas. Um, and they were coming at it from the other side. Like, do you know who founded Adidas? Nope. You know what it stands for? No. So as a kid, you're always told it stands for all day I dream about sports, soccer, yeah. something like that. Yeah. That's just marketing. It's really I thought it was my first name, you know. Yeah. That? But that's true. It is. It's <laughs> Adi Dossler. That was the oh, founder. Okay. He's a German guy. And he and his brother got in a massive fight. His brother stood on one side of the factory, he stood on the other. Brother said, Come with me, I'm starting this company. Adi said, Come with me, I'm starting this company. Adi started Adidas, or Adidas as the Americans call it. Rudolph, his brother, started Puma. Mm. So wound up being a nice division. But because nobody knows that, well, people, some people have heard the story. But if you ask most people who founded Adidas, the answer is exactly what you gave. I don't know. So the family was very, very keen on building something that would carry the legacy forward. So they were looking to anyways put together some kind of vehicle, whether it was like an incubator to do really early ideas, you know, help entrepreneurs from like their beginnings of their journeys to building companies, or whether it was, you know, doing like a fund. They weren't really sure at the time. But the idea was to try to create something that would further this incredible legacy. Because, you know, 100 years ago, just the concept of having a shoe for sport was innovation, right? Like, Think about that. It used to be they'd all be wearing the shoes that you got on your feet right now. Why would you need something special for sport? So, saying something family, bad about my shoes here? I'm saying great things thank about you, their shoes. You. They're just missing some stripes. <laughs> so, okay, so then you so you started with Adidas. Yeah, with the founding family. Um, they sold the business 30, 35 years ago. And we put our heads together and we said, hey, listen, okay, we both believe this is a global problem. Who's we? 
at the time it was our crowd and the founding family. Okay. And they sent their, um, like the great grandson, a guy named Alex to Israel for a couple of months to make sure we were all kosher, that our business was good. And they said, okay, let's, let's try to put together a product to capture this. So that's what we ultimately did. We built a fund together, which myself and Alex run. And that fund invests in the future of sports. And is it still part of our crowd or it's a separate fund? So the first fund was part of our crowd, yes. And the second one will be myself and Alex independent. Mm, so you are now an employee of Adidas ultimately. No, 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 there's no like, there's no connection. Adidas, the company invested in our fund. Adidas, the company is not part of the structure. Mm. Uh, The family sold Adidas in the late eighties. Cool. So what, what are some of the things that you look for now? What, what is the fund focused on? Who are some other partners and what are you guys doing? Yeah. So the fund invests in three areas, sports, fitness, and gaming as it intersects with technology anywhere in the world. That's like a big part of kind of the way we think is that, If I were to say, hey, Adi, pick your best starting five in basketball, you're not going to go pick the five guys you grew up with in your neighborhood. You're going to go global. You're going to say, hey, who's the five best people I've ever seen play? So we believe that that's also true of innovation in sport, that it's really just not local. It's a global thing. So that was the first kind of step is that we we invest in global companies. So about half of our companies are in North America, and the other half are Europe, Israel, India. Um, So we'll, we'll, we'll build a global portfolio. And to do so... We had to build a global team. So we have team members in the first fund from, well, he just left, but he was in Hong Kong, Israel, Europe, and the U.S. to help cover those different spaces and regions um, to look for those companies. And where we'll get involved is typically once a company already has a product, they're already selling in a market, and they're looking to grow out of their local market. So it's called a Series A, um, and our, you know, We'll, we'll write a check of a few million dollars in to help the companies grow. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of investing in, in, in sports technology, are you working with a lot of previous, previous pro athletes? Do you come in contact with people? Yes. Yes, we, we certainly do. Team athletes, owners, former, current, depends on uh, the deal specifically. One of our partners is a guy named Michael Red. I don't know if you remember him. I guess it's yeah, a lefty Milwaukee shooter. You Bucks probably lefty. emulated him. Right. Still has this, the the scoring record over Giannis for most points as a buck. That's impressive. Yeah, I think unfortunately also both had two surgeries on our knees, which is not yeah. a, not a good thing to have. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he's he's a wonderful, amazing guy. Um, Did he come to Israel ever, ever? Yeah, he's come to Israel a few times. Really, what was it like bringing uh, professional athletes uh, to Israel? So I got a rule usually when I bring somebody like that over to Israel, I also make them come for Shabbat. Really? Yeah. So what was it like having uh, Michael Red at your Shabbos table? So first and foremost, he's an incredible human being. and He's amazingly humble. If you were to sit with him right now, all he'd be interested in is how good you are at basketball. You'd like totally forget the company you're in and that he was part of Team USA with Kobe and LeBron. He's just a very, very humble individual. He's very, very patient, very kind, very caring. And he's like his, his superpower, so to speak, is he's just like a great team builder and great energy guy. So, you know, how we use him in the fund context is to help build people up, whether that's founders, whether that's other like, you know, business development relationships that we need to have. Uh, when he's in Israel, it's the same thing, by the way, he'll walk down the street in the shook, you know, and everyone will recognize him. I mean, he's not super tall for a basketball player, but he's still six, six, you know? Um, and he just like, he's great, positive energy. Loves being here. He's very deeply religious uh, as well. Not, 
son of, he's the son of a pastor. And I think he's also, his wife's father was also a pastor. So he's like very, very knowledgeable and loves the land. So he actually came to Israel before our partnership um, anyways, just because he, you know, is very tied to Israel. So being involved in the in the sports world, do you feel that you have the ability or the blessing to also introduce people to Israel in ways that maybe they wouldn't have been introduced before? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, again, athletes, investors, people from other walks of life, different parts of the world. I think that's one of the really cool things about being here is that you're very central in terms of like, you know, you've got Asia, Europe, Africa, states. Like we've had people at our Shabbat tables I don't know, probably 50 countries or something crazy like that, 60 countries. Hmm. Yeah. What's like a common theme for an, an athlete or an investor that's never been to Israel before um, when you bring them here and also for a Shabbat, for a Shabbat meal, like what, what, what do you hear from them? What are they, what are they saying their experience is like? You guys do this every week? <laughs> How? I think that that's number one. Um, Twice a week, wait, you do that Friday night, and then again Shabbat lunch. They're they're a little bit like, wow, this is an amazing thing. I get a lot of I don't understand how can you turn your phone off for twenty five hours and be like competent at what you do because you know our jobs they don't have hours, right? Like when a startup needs you is when the startup needs you. Uh, when an investor needs you, you know you can have a moment where you might have to fly in four hours to you know halfway across the world. And when you put something else first, it's very, very surprising at first to people. But then when they come and they see it and they taste it themselves, I think they all get it immediately. To quote one of my friends who was an NBA player for many years, the first time he experienced Shabbat, he said, this is Thanksgiving, but it's better. What did he mean by that? Did he he push meant him? that like he grew up in a trailer that he couldn't stand up in, you know, and then he made the NBA, which was kind of beyond his wildest dreams. And, you know, family got together, but, you know, it was what it was at that time. You know, maybe maybe something on the weekends, maybe around July 4th, maybe around, like, Memorial Day in the States. But, you know, getting the family together is a thing. And then getting the family together where there's less distractions, there's no phones, there's kind of like, you know, a ritual or common goals or understandings, that, that doesn't happen very often. He's like, you're very lucky to have that. He, he liked it enough. He came back quite a few times. Mm. It seems like, you know, through this... this not playing on Friday night from back in high school to now coming here and bringing in, you know, professional athletes to your Shabbos table. seems like a really, really unbelievable things that you use, use religion to, to, to be a good example for everybody around you. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think so. One time we had, um, I'm going to keep him a little bit nameless, but we had a first round NFL pick who wound up winning a Super Bowl, being on a pro bowl team. If you say a few more details, I may figure out who it is. Yeah. He's, thankfully, he's done extremely well playing football. He's retired now. And he, he was coming to Israel, and um, we hosted him for Shabbat. And his assistant called me in advance and said, I just want you to know you're hosting, like, an offensive tackle. <laughs> so, like, however much food you're thinking of making, double it. And I said, trust me, there is more food than any human can eat. I think uh, we won that, that battle. <laughs> I think yeah when you're when you're just when you're genuine about it and you put people in a different setting and there's less distractions and there's something just super special especially about Jerusalem Shabbat um, I know for us that's what like certainly has kept us here long term you know we came for one year and now we're here 12 one years later that's kind of the way we think about it as a family 
Shabbat is something that like you just got to come and try it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you on that. Is that there have been a few times that we've dabbled with moving out of the out of the neighborhood and you know running a study abroad program, getting all these students to come to Israel, um, and then their families come to visit for the first time. Being in being in Jerusalem and getting them to the house for a meal and then having inter- yeah. it just Jerusalem is something so special for being here. Um, in terms of perception of these athletes, uh, we spoke a little bit about Judaism and, and, and Shabbos. What about Israel? Like, How is their perception of Israel compared to what they've potentially seen in the news in America and then coming here? So the NFL player is a great example of that. He said, I'm coming, but I'm going to make my own decisions on how I think about Israel. And let's just say he's now calling me to come back. Uh, we, we, have, we host big meals whenever those types of folks are around just to kind of give them the, the experience and the examples of, you know, the door's always open, right? I think when you have that as the mantra and the mentality, people will draw their own conclusions because you can never really get inside somebody's head. You can't, you can't force it. What are the type of things that you suggest them to experience while they're here to really, like, experience Israel? So I, I think it depends on the person and are they more religiously oriented? Are they here more interested in Tel Aviv? Are they more interested in startups and tech? So the way we try to do it is just kind of more along the lines of whatever you want to do will help facilitate it, whether it's, you know, other religion stuff, that's fine. We know people we can call, and you can go ahead and get that in as well. If it's the Jewish stuff you're interested in, and great. We know exactly what to do there. If it's the history, we know exactly what to do there. I think it's also just meeting the different types of people in the land. I think that really helps. Um, helps in terms of like giving them the chance to inform their own opinions. And I think once you're here and you see it and you meet the people, you realize that whatever you've seen on TV for the good and for the bad, it just ain't that way. So it's just very unique that you're able to really take your two or three passions uh, of life, of sports, religion, Israel, and uh, merge that into a profession. What, what, what has that been like? A blessing. Like it hasn't been calculated. You know, if, uh, if anyone was to ask me, and I, I do this type of speaking a, a fair amount, where they say, hey, how, how did you make partner at a VC fund? I say, well, I did everything you're not supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally every step of the way. Like, I think my job titles were, like, analyst, associate, senior manager of operations, and then founding managing partner. Like, it's not, you know, I, I was never a person who could walk on, on the beaten path. I guess I had to march the beat of my own drum, to use the uh, age-old, you know, saying. So... I think for me, it was just really just trying to be authentic. And when I saw that inch, you'd have to drag me off the court dead again. And that's, I think, just on all opportunities. And when you meet people that, you know, you wouldn't ever think you would meet. And again, there's athletes, there's diplomats, there's kings and princes of certain nations, maybe nearby, maybe not. I think as long as you're just open and you're true, then these kinds of things and these opportunities that you never would imagine could come to you. So I think you just touched on it, but maybe just to end off is, um, you know, you put yourself out there, done a lot of, a lot of unbelievable things for most of our listeners, you no know, young, just in college, finishing college. You know, what would you say are the most important traits or the most important things to focus on to have a successful life and, uh, and a successful profession? Well, first off, I would say we should ask you that question because I think you've done a great <laughs> job of it in your role model of mine. But Thank you very much. Um, I'd say one of the first things I learned in Israel is that there's a really interesting difference in negotiation in Israel and the States. So in the States, you have this imaginary line where each side gets as close as they can to the line without stepping over. 
you're going to laugh when I tell you how the Israeli side is. The Israeli side is, here's the line. I'm going to step over and see what happens. And he's going to step over or she's going to step over and see what happens because both of us need to win and call the other one a friar. A friar is like a sucker, right? So what that taught me is that in a negotiation or when I'm feeling like I've met my wall, just to try to go over it, right? Because a lot of the times we put these blockers in front of ourselves. So I'm famous for saying on my team that, Anytime where someone tells you no, it's usually the beginning of yes, right? So if that's somebody saying, hey, there's no way, Adi, you can't dunk a basketball. Okay, my job is literally to bet that you will be able to dunk a basketball. And I'll be wrong sometimes, I'll be right sometimes. But I think taking down those, those constructs and those walls, which we're taught by whatever it is in society that helps us build those walls or ourselves, I think realize that those are usually self-implemented or societally implemented you know, I certainly would not have been able to do any of the things that I had done had I listened to the rules, right? It's like, oh, you're 13th man on a 12-man basketball team. Next year, you're starting, you know, to try to play college and then playing pro. Just on the basketball side alone, that, that whole journey didn't exist. There's maybe like, you know, 10, 15 people that came over from, you know, the religious high schools that we all attended to play pro and actually did it. It wasn't by walking down the path that you were supposed to walk down. So that's probably number one. And number two, I would say being persistent. Again, that's worked very well for me. Persistent and not taking the no's, I think, are, are kind of one side of it, but also just trying to really, really understand what your superpowers, what you're really, really good at, and the things that you're not so good at. My biggest mistake as a basketball player was always trying to work on the things I wasn't good at. I thought, like, hey, I need to be multidimensional. I need to be able to do everything. But if you think about, like, a heat map, and I look at any of my friends who played at the highest levels of pro, listen, Michael will tell you this, Red. I jump higher than him. I run faster than him. Athletically, I'm better than him. Straight up. Am I a better basketball player than him? Absolutely not. He'd beat me 100 to 0 if we played one-on-one. -on -one. I want to say that's the, the size of the gap. But it's he leaned into what he was so good at and tried to really hone and perfect that skill and not get dragged down by, hey, I'm not the most athletic or I'm not the this or that. It's really lean into the things that you're very, very good at and build your superpowers. And be self-aware. In my case, what that means for team building is bringing in people that are much better than me and all the other things because I got a lot of weaknesses too. In this you know, podcast, we highlighted some of the positives, but there's certainly things that I work on as well and struggle with. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time. Looking forward to the Shabbos meal with you and your professional athletes. And of course, even more so, I'm looking forward to the Shabbos meal with you a lot, Alessandro and the kids coming over to us. Sounds good, Adi. All the best, man. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for hosting me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please help us reach more people by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For more content like this, visit our website at thrivestudyabroad.org.